the biggest thing that you can do is really stand behind your product. We didn't want consumers having an experience that was less than um, what we were accustomed to. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. This is episode number 131. Today's show, I'll be very brief. Christian is a friend of mine and along with Lindsay from Cherryvale Farms, has provided a lot of advice to me, so I was thrilled to have him on the show. What's really cool about Christian is, you know, this this business he has, Cabo Chips, has been around for going on 13 years now. And how many people listening have been in the food game over a decade? Some, but most of us, I would guess, have not. And the perspective he provides, dealing with seasonality and sales working with co-packers, how to utilize your strengths, hiring a CEO, all sorts of cool stuff, and a a fun story as well, starting in Mexico on the weekends while he was at University of Southern California, also known as USC. So yeah, check it out. I really hope you like this one. At Cabo Chips, they're committed to making the most authentic, delicious, and minimally processed tortilla chip out there. They'll never cut corners, and when it comes to quality, they're dedicated to choosing only real and fresh ingredients. The the process is done with a lot of care, um, and and very methodically they make just a great tasting non-GMO tortilla chip, Cabo chips. This all started while he was a junior in college at USC, going down to Baja, California, where they opened a small tortilla chip factory and started manufacturing them and selling them. And then when he graduated college the following year, he took it to the next level. That's 2005. And 12, 13 years later, he's obviously expanded and um, developed a, a great company. I'm really excited to have him on the show. He has served uh, to give me a lot of advice over the last couple months as him uh, Lindsay from Cherryville Farms, also on the show, and I just talk about the food industry in general. So I, uh, I'm very grateful to him. And uh, yeah, he's going to tell us all his learning from, from the food industry. Christian Bunte of Cabo Chips, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah. So I, let's start out because I know, uh, so there's another website, Christian, called Food Grad. So sometimes I go on, I answer questions for people that are graduating college that are interested in food. Right. And um, and so this is, you know, 2004. Take me back to 2004 when you started this chip brand. I mean, what was your life like? Um, well, I was uh, an, an undergrad student living in Los Angeles. And this was something that uh, the, the chip company was a little bit something that we had thought of for a long time. I grew up going to the beach in Southern California, snacking a lot and um, moving to Los Angeles. I was exposed to Whole Foods, which I, I didn't have close and to Christian, my home. Sorry uh, to interrupt here, but where did you move from? From South Orange County. Okay. Um, so, And now there are Whole Foods all over there. So if you visited there, you'd be like, what are you talking about? But um, at the time, uh, there were there were no Whole Foods. And 
And so I thought there was a great opportunity to create something that was a, a healthier alternative, but still authentic. Because at the time, you know, going back, it's very different now, but, but at the time back in 2004, the snack options were a lot healthier to the point where they didn't taste as great. And, and obviously now that's changed, but um, that's where I saw my opportunity to create an uh, authentic option that tasted great, but was better for you. Gotcha. So high level. Doritos, Frito-Lay, those types of chips, they definitely taste good, but, uh, but they're not healthy for you um, because of the, the ingredients? Yeah, that's, okay. that's true. And then so I guess way back then in 2004, you, there were healthy options, but maybe they didn't really have the, the flavor profile of uh, some, some chips you want to eat in Baja, California on the beach uh, during Thanks. the corona. Exactly. You know, a lot of baked chips back then, which are super dry, or flavors that are just infused with ingredients that that might be great for you but uh i've always felt that if i'm going to eat something healthy i'd I'd rather have like a uh, salad but if i'm going to have some tortilla chips i'd really like an authentic uh, option and and that was kind of my impetus for starting the brand totally yeah and you see this with a lot of different niches in the the healthy foods and natural food space taste wins out and it's very difficult to compete with without taste so okay great so so that was the idea and and uh, you started this i guess with uh with a buddy from from college uh no actually it was a uh family member a family uh, member okay yeah says my stepfather your stepfather okay so father and son company stepfather and son company and how did you manage going to school and running this tortilla chip business at the same time um well to to be honest it was still very early on at that time so and it was more of an, an experiment to, to be to be honest. I was in the entrepreneur program at USC. So fortunately for me, a lot of my work assignments were basically creating a business. So I was able to do a feasibility study and that was what my work assignments were at the same time. So it had really emerged both the launch of this business and and my schoolwork. So it, it really wasn't a separate thing. It was all one in the same which I was very fortunate for. And, um, and then having launched it in Cabo San Lucas, where, um, you know, Mexico is not, it's not as complex in terms of permitting and, and launching a business and business licenses. Um, it really enabled us to get our feet wet, um, tweak the formulation because it was tourists for the most part going down there and really get things going um, smoothly before uh, going forward full speed ahead uh, after graduation back here in the States. That's really interesting because it's like the, I would think, uh, if not the majority, uh, a pretty large part of the American tourists, uh, we'll say uh, United States tourists that go to Cabo San Lucas are from Southern California, right? I mean, yeah. so you can test your market in, in, a different, uh, in a different region in Mexico. So you had your testing grounds. And so were you uh, like flying or or maybe driving, it might be kind of long, down uh, on the weekends to, to Cabo? How did you manage, I, I, I assume you had yeah. to be physically present in USC? Flying um, flying down probably uh, once a month or so, once every other month, and, and, and my stepfather was probably going down monthly at that time as well. But, you know, we had a business manager down there uh, that was managing the factory and helping um, service accounts that we would open up as we were traveling back and forth as well. Gotcha. And uh, another interesting point. So your uh, your family is is, uh, is from Colombia, correct? So you, Spanish was not a problem. 
yeah, no, Spanish was not a problem. And growing up in Southern California, Spanish really wasn't a problem either. I mean, it's pretty ingrained in the culture of Southern California. That's awesome. I, so Christian, I found that, um, so a lot of friends that, you know, um, from the U.S. that I met in Colombia, they go back and a lot of the jobs they've gotten, more than anything, just because they speak Spanish, it's just opened up a, a lot of doors for them. And um, I think it's as true now today as it was uh, 12 years ago, because in the U.S. we're definitely slower to learn languages than pretty much everywhere else in, in the world. Yeah. I, I agree. It's an invaluable uh, tool to be able to speak a second and potentially third language. I, I highly recommend it, especially in the food industry. I feel like now it's becoming such a global industry. You're really going to have a better opportunity if you can speak a second language. Right on. And then so so you graduated college and then you moved the production to the United States, correct? Yeah, we moved the production to the United States. We wanted to keep it down there. Um, we, we loved working with the team down there. But um, for consistency's sake, you know, it was hard to get our corn supply down there, uh, which sounds weird, but the Mexican government really regulates corn supply. So it was just it was much more challenging to get consistently good quality corn. Shipping costs were a challenge, logistics. And so it just made a lot more sense for us to open up a small facility in Orange County where we could have our finger on the pulse of production on a day-to-day basis and really make sure that we were providing the consistent product our consumers were expecting, both down in Cabo and back um, here in the States. Gotcha. And so the 2005, 2006, that's when you opened the plant in, in Orange County. And uh, yeah, I mean, what was it like? How much did it cost to get this initial plant set up? Um, you know, initial plant setup wasn't that bad. I mean, we really... Um, we, we tried to keep things as lean as possible. Uh, obviously, the real estate wasn't the uh, the greatest choice in South Orange County. It's pretty right. pricey to open a chip factory, but I thought the value there was being close to um, my stepfather who had a, another business nearby and um, other advisors that I um, have spoken with uh, over the years. And so just location-wise, coming right out of college, that made sense. But otherwise, you know, we started with a basic fryer that, you know, like you would see in the back of a McDonald's, we used a hand sealer to seal the bag. So we really started things off very inexpensive. And then as we grew and as we proved the business more and more, we were able to, you know, reinvest our our growth capital in in the more sophisticated equipment, like a packaging machine, which um, those are expensive. A packaging machine costs a quarter of a million dollars, um, but we didn't invest in that until probably about year three. And that just shows, you know, you can get a long way on very basic equipment that, you know, I, I think overall we probably spent 15 to 20 grand to get totally up and running. Not bad at all, especially in Orange County. Yeah, not bad. Wow, cool. And uh, yeah, and I've, I've seen that, so Christian, I've seen that from a, a lot of people that do decide to go the manufacturing route and not use a co-packer. Uh, when it comes to machinery, they, it's almost like you, you do things manual till it gets to the point where, wow, we could really, really, really use this machine as, a, as opposed to buying this machine without, like, it's like you go through the, the stress of it. So by the time you get the machine, you know exactly what to do with it and you know how it's going to improve the production. I guess it's kind of the yeah. lean model as opposed to buying a bunch of expensive equipment from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think you learn a lot in the manufacturing process too. You know, you might think, oh, I need this machine when you're thinking about it, because that's what the equipment salespeople are telling you. But then as you really get working, 
you might find that there are alternatives that are better suited for your need, or you might have to develop um, a piece of equipment that um, you didn't uh, foresee as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I see this with machinery, especially for like packaging, as well as like sorting fruits, like limes and avocados, we've looked a little bit into that. And to give them credit, the brochures and the salesmen, they make it seem, I mean, and they are really, I mean, there's some really great machinery out there, but they're really good at, at um, hooking you in to, to buy this expensive machinery because I mean, it's their job and the capacity is great, but sometimes the, the way it fits into your business, I guess, like you mentioned, and just getting to know the production process, you, you learn things that you didn't know when you started. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, well, listen, I want to move on to 2012 because that was a, a pivotal year where basically you had to decide, you know, the conventional versus the natural channel. So just take us there. And if you could walk us through that decision, all the relevant steps involved that you think our audience would want to hear. Yeah. So um, in 2012, I found that uh, my stepfather and I were really disagreeing on the direction of the brand. I really wanted to focus on the the natural and specialty channel. I thought that's where we had a lot more of an opportunity. I mean, that's where I originally kind of viewed the opportunity in, in learning about Whole Foods when I moved to Los Angeles. And I felt like we were going in too many directions. You know, we were in um, a lot of conventional stores at the time, which which some were in now, but I, I just don't think we were ready for at that early of a stage, and some that were still not in convenience stores. That hey, were, Christian, one second. When you say we're not ready for, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I think conventional stores, you really need a lot more brand awareness and marketing dollars because consumers in those stores aren't necessarily as explorative as they are in say a whole foods or a natural or specialty store. So, you know, um, in Southern California, some examples of specialty stores would be like a Bristol farms or a Gelson's. Those kinds of consumers I think are walking down the aisle and looking for new and innovative products. But, um, in a conventional grocery store, I think you really have to have consumers walking in looking for your product. And, um, we just weren't there yet. So I was able to raise some capital to buy out my business partner at the time. And that's when we moved away from manufacturing ourselves. We rebranded a little bit. We we got our non-GMO project verifications and kosher certifications, all stuff that we technically met the requirements of before, but we just hadn't invested in, in the um, certifications and that really changed the the direction of the brand and and having that hyper focus on a specific channel of trade really allowed us to focus our marketing efforts our sales efforts and just really drive the growth of the brand and and it has been exponential since since 2012. that's amazing and uh so you mentioned i mean this is a huge change i assume you you may have also asked people for advice. You mentioned this before. I mean, what um, what background do your do your mentors and advisors have, and and what's the relationship like there? A lot of them that I've spoken with are are usually background in in the food and beverage industry, and and also a lot of my professors from USC have been pretty influential for me as well, being uh, successful entrepreneurs themselves. And the, the relationship with all of my investors and advisors is great. And, and I'm able to, to tap into them for support when I need. And I think that's an important um, line of communication to establish early because, well, especially for me, not having worked anywhere else in my life, uh, <laughs> there's been a, a 
a strong learning curve in terms of running a business and, and hiring people and that kind of stuff. And so it's been very important for me to have a shoulder to uh, lean on and speak with in terms of growing the business. Yeah, I love that because I thought that as well. I was like, oh, if you started this junior year of college and it's been 12 years, there was no other jobs outside of that. And I've, so I have a similar path to yours, Christian. I've, you know, I had jobs in high school and college, but like company, company, I had one job for seven months out of college. Besides that, I've been independent freelance entrepreneur ever since. And it's nice just having, cause I mean, just understanding the demographic, demographics of people and their behavior, you notice that someone that's worked for example in Whole Foods or, or large food companies, uh, they understand the, the politics, the way people think. Um, and we don't really have access to that firsthand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's why it's, it's great to have a wide um, variety of, of advisors um, and investors that complement your strengths. So um, I think uh, my strength is, is definitely kind of in the, the product innovation, the sales and marketing. And so having people that can advise me on operations and business strategy has been r- really important. And how, um, what have you learned about hiring over the years? Oh, man. Uh, I think it's just, I think the most important thing to me is hiring people that fit the right culture of the brand and that are willing to learn and work hard. I, I think that um, that's been really important. So everybody that I've hired, I think, has fit the culture of, of uh, energetic and and outdoorsy in a sense so that they're really living the lifestyle of like, you know, I grew up surfing and going to the beach and, and that's why we started this in Cabo San Lucas. And so um, really people that when they're going into the stores or going into sales meeting kind of convey the brand of Cabo San Lucas um, because I think that most of the other strengths can can really be taught or, or um, groomed over time. It's interesting and I have to admit, so just working in food and in Colombia, I love I love business trips to exotic destinations where there's, uh, you know, where there's agriculture because it's kind of part of the lifestyle because being an entrepreneur, you have to sacrifice a lot of things. So I thought, oh, having the production in Cabo San Lucas, not a bad place to work um, and, and be around. And, and yeah, and Christian, so I, I guess I wanted to ask you, I read Sammy Hagar's uh, uh, autobiography and I, I know he launched a, a brand, I think of tequila and he had like a, a Cabo Wabo. Do you guys sell your chips mm-hmm. down there in Cabo San Lucas? Um, uh, we do, we do sell our, uh, chips in Cabo San Lucas. We're sold in many of the bodegas, like the, the little hotel markets that you see in the lobby. We're in, um, there are uh, a number of markets that are catered more towards tourists down there. There's a Costco down there. So we do a, a lot of business down there. Uh, it's just focused primarily on the, um, tourist market though i think our our price point is still a little bit too high for the local community down there and so obviously i would guess the majority of your sales are in the united states so do you have like a importer distributor there that manages everything for you and you just send them the chips from california uh yeah actually um unfi our our largest customer goes down there now or I actually don't know how it works. They, they, I think they have an importer exporter that they work with, and then we can direct our natural, our customers down there to the item numbers from UNFI and the products get down there. And we are actually looking to open up a relationship with an importer exporter that uh, does focus on that 
region so that we can um, grow that business even even more. Very cool. Yeah, I, I just think from a paperwork perspective, it's it's pretty nice having UNFI, at least right now, uh, handle all of those uh, logistics and, and so forth, invoicing. Well, Christian, I, uh, a couple other topics I'd like to touch with you. So first off, uh, the seasonality, right? So 4th of July, Super Bowl, Cinco de Mayo, these are big chips, nacho, guacamole weekends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so walk us through that in terms of planning, production, and promotion. Yeah, so um, in terms of planning production, we create our promotional calendar about uh, six months in advance of uh, when the promotions are supposed to run. So, you know, we had an idea of what we were going to do in the first six months of 2017, back in June and July of 2016. Um, so we're able to, to kind of map out where we expect our spikes to be because we, we obviously have a, a huge lift when we're on promotion. And so when we're planning our promotions, we look at what are our big, uh, quote unquote, snacking opportunities. And so people are snacking a lot at Super Bowl. They're snacking a lot on Memorial Day and Fourth of July. And and then we also look at alternative opportunities. You know, Cinco de Mayo is a big um, Hispanic themed holiday that that I think that we fit very well, having started our brand in Cabo San Lucas and having our expensive flavor, our authentic flavors. And so we plan to increase production with our co-packer around those time periods so that we don't have any um, out of stocks or lost sales. In terms of, of planning the promotions this is one of the things that we go back and forth on quite a bit is certain things like Cinco de Mayo, like I mentioned, you know, we don't have as much competition competing for eyeballs at Cinco de Mayo because of our authenticity. But Super Bowl, every snack company is promoting at that time. And so we really try to, and I can't say that we figured this out, alternate some years really pushing our promotions at the same time um, and some years promoting either a little bit before or after the holiday so that we're not competing, our our ad dollars aren't competing with some of the big competitors that have um, much larger displays or ad dollars available. Right. Um, When you say ad dollars, these are kind of like in-store displays? Yes, in-store displays, in-store advertising, that kind of stuff. Our our brand is still very much focused on the, um, in terms of advertising, on the in-store advertising, and then outside of the stores, it's much more uh, social media, grassroots events, uh, sampling. We don't do very much or none at all of traditional advertising or uh, marketing spend. Right, no, no Super Bowl commercials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and Christian, so a question for you. So social media, is that something you outsource or do you have an in-house team that manages that? We typically do that in-house. We, we did work with a great te- uh, outsource team about a year ago, but then as we were uh, building out our team and realizing that we needed more marketing support in terms of demos and event marketing when we hired on a marketing manager, it just made more sense to have that person handle the social media responsibility as well. So I think it can go both ways. Um, like I said, I, the firm that we worked with, was they were great. But then once we had to hire a marketing person full-time anyways, then we just handed that responsibility to them. Right on. And they probably, this uh, this firm that you hired, probably since they did great work, I'm sure the marketing person could kind of use that as a reference point uh, in his, his or her efforts. Yeah, exactly. 
And and so you mentioned that you know, we just finished talking about promoting for the holidays and working with a co-packer. Can you provide the listeners some tips for working with a co-packer? Yeah, so I mean, for us, the transition to a co-packer was, was important because we, at the time, it was a very lean team. And so I was having to help manage the factory in the mornings and do sales and marketing in the afternoon. And, and we just weren't getting the growth that we needed. So we switched to a co-packer. And I think that the most important thing when you're working with a co-packer is they are not going to be, at least not in my experience, have not been a totally hands-off solution to manufacturing. You still need to be very close to that process, monitoring the quality control, because the the production is going to vary by who's running the shift or just the experience of the team on the line. And I just think it's very important to, to stay very close to the production. Yeah, so it's, you have to stay on top of the production. I also think that what might be clear in our minds when we're, you're explaining the process, step one, step two, may not be so clear in someone who's never made these these chips before. Yeah, and, and especially for us because our process uses all real ingredients. We don't use any flavorings of any kind, so no, no natural flavorings or anything like that. The seasoning strength and consistency can vary by batches or by um, crops. And so it's a little bit more variable with our products than some of the traditional snack foods. And so really educating the teams working on production to our process has been uh, pretty complex, but you know, uh, it's, it's always getting better, but I, I just feel very strongly that if you're going to go with a co-packer, you really um, need to dedicate some time there with them to educate all of the team on how the product is produced and your quality expectations and create clear guidelines for what is acceptable and not acceptable. So it's almost like a, a pipe dream because I know startup founders are really busy. To, you send over a, a Word document with step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, number of ingredients, ready, set, go. It's just, it just doesn't work that way in, in reality, does it? Uh, not in my experience. Yeah. No. Cool. And have you ever had just batches that you've had to get rid of because of problems with the consistency? Yeah, we've had some some batches that, you know, there's been fluctuations in the texture of the chips. We've actually have had to go through a major recall about a year and a half ago, and that was a very uh, expensive uh, learning experience for both us and the co-packer. But I think that the biggest thing that you can do is really stand behind your product. And so when we noticed this issue, we wanted to get ahead of it. And it was a, a quality related issue. So it was an interesting recall process in that, um, you know, it wasn't like a health thing. So we had to actively get the stores to um, pull the product off the shelf because we didn't want consumers having an experience that was less than what we were accustomed to. I think that's huge because I think of whether it's UNFI or, or Whole Foods, whoever, having them to find out and tell you it's way different experience for them than you saying, hey, then, you know, there might be a little bit of inconsistency in the seasoning or, or the flavor or whatever and, and get it on top of that. So that seems like a, uh, you handle that situation really well. Yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was important for us. And I think that at the end of the day, it made the relationship with most of our retailers even stronger because, you know, we were able to get in touch with them, communicate why we felt this was important and really get ahead of it and stand behind our product. And I think that showed the retailers that 
we really believed in what we were doing and, and, and the strength of our product. That's really interesting, right? Because I'm sure at least the first three seconds when you find out about this, right, there's a, might be a little bit of panic or like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really bad. And then uh, it ends up strengthening in the long term, albeit with a financial setback in, in the short term. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, well, uh, one, a couple other things here. So, so Christian, I'm curious. Uh, I know in the last couple of months, you've stepped back in the sense that with so much going on, you decided to hire a CEO. So can you tell us, uh, you know, most of us are founder, CEO, janitor, everything, right? So how has your role changed? And, and just walk us through that experience and the idea behind that. Yeah, so I mean, the idea behind it was, I we had to look at where the the most value was coming from my efforts, because as we've continued to grow, it's it's just you know we're dealing with some retailers nationally, we're dealing with uh, a launch of a new product line, and I was just spread way too thin, and um, so we looked at the business, we looked at, you know, okay, where's my value? My value is in kind of product innovation. And then as well as kind of being the face of the brand, the sales, the marketing side of things. And so one of our investors stepped in as, as the CEO to help manage the operations side of the business in terms of a day-to-day operations. Um, We hired some additional support on the sales side so that I could really focus on where I'm going to be most effective and uh, I think that's a really important, a very difficult step for somebody like myself who always likes to be going and likes to have my hands in, in, um, in a little bit of everything. And I, I've definitely had my hand slapped a few times by the new CEO, like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a learning process. Um, but I think it's, it's been really great for our business. I mean, we've had a lot. This has only been over the last four to six months. And, and I think we've seen a, a, um, a big transition, even just in that time frame. It's really interesting, Christian, because as you know, we're all doing so many things and so many different things. And, uh, I think anyone can think about their business and where do they deliver the most value? So being able to set that up where you can focus on, um, I guess the, the part of, we'll call it the supply chain, um, that you offer the most value, um, is a great move. Um, Christian, well, listen, I, uh, I really want to thank you for coming on to the show today. I learned a ton and, uh, yeah, I hope to have you back in the future. Yeah. Thank you very much again for having me and, and glad I could, uh, make the time to, to talk to you and, and the show. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.